Could Putin lose power? Keith Gessen For the past several months, I have been talking to experts about a possible coup in Russia. I approached the question gingerly. It seemed too much to hope for, it seemed naive. Vladimir Putin had been in power for more than two decades. Many had predicted his demise, always prematurely. There was a small cottage industry on Twitter of people insisting that Putin was ill. They liked to post photos of him sitting at meetings, clutching his desk as if he were about to fall. I didn't want to be like that. Is this ridiculous to even think about? I would ask the experts. The experts laughed. They felt the same way. A coup is unlikely, they agreed. A popular uprising, a Ceausescu scenario, in which the people stormed the party's headquarters, convened a hasty trial, and murdered their dictator, probably even less so. To a scenario like the one that actually played out last weekend, one of Putin's warlords raising a mutiny, taking over one of the country's military headquarters, and marching on Moscow, all while Putin was still in power, we gave very little consideration. It just seemed too outlandish to talk about. And yet, since the war began, all of the experts had been thinking about ways in which the Putin regime might collapse and watching what Putin was doing to protect himself. Peter Clement, a former director of Russia analysis at the CIA, noted a televised meeting, days before the war, in which Putin browbeat members of his Security Council into pledging their support for his Ukraine policy. It was a brilliant move by Putin, Clement thought, to bring his senior administration officials in line. They're all complicit now, Clement said. It's not like one of them can say, I thought this was a stupid idea. They all signed on. Sign up for the daily. Over and over, we heard the same thing, Zurovlev said. If there's one thing I know about politics, it's that I don't know anything about politics. The people in the Kremlin are foreign to me, they are not like me. But they must have their reasons. It was depoliticization in its purest form. Zurovlev's occasional collaborator, the longtime polling expert Elena Koneva, had spent the year and a half since the war began running a project called Extreme Scan, through which she designed polls to figure out the basis for Russian public support of the war and what could cause it to contract. She had seen signs, mostly in the border regions of Russia, that, when the war began to truly affect people's lives, their opinions started to change. First they experience fear of retribution, we have done so many horrible things to Ukraine, one respondent said, that the Ukrainian army will inevitably come here, but the actual experience of war, of shortages, of shelling, of people being forced to evacuate, began to erode support for the war. And Kaneva predicted that, if things got worse, support would erode further. If people are constantly having to sit in bomb shelters and women are giving birth without medicine, she said, then an end to the war will become their most passionate wish. Yevgeny Prigazin figured in our conversations as a grotesque and somewhat comic character. When looking at the Putin regime, one Moscow-based historian said, we're all wondering who the Beria figure is going to be, referring to one of Stalin's most efficient henchmen, tried and executed by his former comrades after Stalin's death. Who are they going to take out and shoot right away? And then you look at the criminal types who are working for the Kremlin, and you see Prigazin. There's your Beria. 
For Kendall Taylor, speaking in May, Prigazin's antics, his profane insults and increasingly aggressive rants, which included accusations of treason against the Russian army's leadership, were a sign of elite discord. In a post-Putin world, she said, the presence of warlords like Prigazin and Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of the Chechen Republic, could lead to a Sudan scenario in which these forces would start a civil war. In the near term, though, with Putin still in power, she did not think Prigazin would undertake an actual rebellion. At the time, his criticisms of the military seemed only symbolically significant, a sign that the elite was in disarray and that protest actions, whether secessionist or anti-war, might not be met with as much force as people had once thought. Regime stability is a funny thing. One day it's there, the next day, poof, it's gone. The Moscow-based historian, who asked that his name not be used since he was still in Russia, recalled what it was like to observe the Politburo in the early 1980s. They looked like a totally homogeneous mass, he said. There was no indication, in their public statements or in anything else, that any of these people thought differently from one another. But Gorbachev, it turned out, did think differently. In the years to come, he undertook a series of reforms that ended with the Soviet Union ceasing to exist. Authoritarian regimes could seem very stable, until suddenly they weren't. Video from The New Yorker Thank you for your service, healing from the trauma of war. On the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Kendall Taylor convened a group of experts to compile a stability tracker for the Putin regime. The tracker identifies 10 pillars, ranging from absence of an alternative to Putin to the idea, among Russian citizens, of Russia as a besieged fortress, and tries to indicate whether these are growing stronger or weaker. As of this spring, several factors were going in the wrong direction for Putin, his elite was becoming fragmented, his economy was suffering the effects of the war and of sanctions, and his military, historically apolitical, was being pulled into the political arena by concerns over Prigazin's rising influence and its access to military resources. But the factors going in the other direction were more numerous, according to Kendall Taylor's experts, Putin had strengthened his control over the information environment, the people most discontented with his rule were leaving the country, and the idea of Russia as a besieged fortress was gaining rather than losing adherence. Most important, there remained no viable alternative to Putin, his warlords were politically unpopular, and his heroic opponent, Alexei Navalny, was being denied food, sleep, and medical care in a Russian prison. In the absence of an alternative, the status quo would continue. Among experts thinking about the Russian regime, there are, very roughly speaking, two kinds, those who look at Russian and Soviet history and culture to determine what might happen next, and those who look at Russian authoritarianism in comparative perspective, that is, alongside authoritarian regimes in Egypt and China and Turkey. This is also known as the political science versus area studies debate. The different approaches yield slightly different hypotheses. Before joining the CIA, Clement wrote a PhD dissertation on the so-called Congress of Victors in 1934, at which Stalin consolidated his rule and also began to see that not everyone was satisfied with it. In the 80s, Clement analyzed the succession struggles during the post-Brezhnev period. His interest in regime insiders partly stems from this experience. 
Kendall Taylor, a comparativist with a Russian focus, who studied in graduate school with Barbara Geddes, one of the founders of modern quantitative authoritarian studies, prefers looking at the numbers, this many regimes of this type fell in this manner, this many regimes of this different type fell differently. But everyone agrees that the life of a regime is full of contingencies, leaders can make mistakes. They can, for example, start a brutal and senseless war against a neighboring country and refuse to relent even when the war is going badly. Prigazin's march to Moscow came as a shock to just about everyone. Clement had been on high alert ever since the Russian authorities declared, on June 10, that they would require all Wagner soldiers to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense, that is, technically, to dissolve Wagner as an independent entity. Zubok had also noted the increasing fractiousness of the Russian elite and wrote to me before the uprising that the emperor might not be clothed. Kendall Taylor, in an article she co-wrote for Foreign Affairs, mentioned Prigazin as a possible pretender to the throne after Putin's departure. But no one expected the sequence of events that unfolded last weekend. In their aftermath, there were more questions than answers. Zubok wrote a piece for the New Statesman in which he compared Prigazin's act to Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon and marching on Rome in 49 BC. He recalled that the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky had once proclaimed, when he was a young man on the make in the new Russia, that the man with the rifle, an iconic symbol of the Bolshevik Revolution, had been replaced by the man with the ruble. But now the man with the rifle was back, a new political era had dawned in Russia. I asked Zubok why he had decided to go outside of Russian history to try to explain the Prigazin phenomenon. He said that Russian history can sometimes feel like a straitjacket. Hey, it's the Smuda. Hey, it's 1917. Hey, it's 1991. I'm the last person to argue that those patterns don't matter. But sometimes you want a little something different. Sometimes you want to explore other historical connections. But, he added, there is a huge caveat. Despite its many wars and campaigns, Russia has never actually produced a Caesar, that is, a warlord who marches on the capital with his men and takes political power. There is a reason for that. The traditional political system, arguably still in place to this day, is a triangle comprising the Tsar, the Boyars, and the people. In times of trouble, the Tsar can play the people against the boyars, and vice versa. If things go bad, the boyars can take the blame. This is, in effect, what Prigazin was asking for, that Putin sack his boyars in the army, who had made such a hash of the war. Zubok acknowledged the danger inherent in such a strategy for Putin, you may think that someone is a red general, but next thing you know they've turned around and are executing the Bolshevik leadership. As happened with Ivan Sorokin, a revolutionary commander in the Russian Civil War who went rogue in the North Caucasus and attacked the Soviet leadership in his own district before finally being killed himself. But this is the sort of thing that happens in the absence of a czar when the Smuda is in full swing, whereas Putin, however weakened, remains the czar. You have to acknowledge the sources of resilience in this crazy system, Zabok said. His prediction was that Putin would remain in power, chastened, but basically unchanged. This was also Clement's analysis. There were many things about the events of the weekend that he found notable, including the fact that Prigazin's column of trucks and armor, traveling, exposed, along Russia's highways, had managed to go as far as they did. When was the last time you saw a column on a highway? 
Clement asked, recalling the Russian trucks and tanks on the road to Kiev last year that had been methodically picked apart by Ukrainian forces. His conclusion was that local commanders did not feel that they could take the initiative to destroy Prigazin's column, it was above their pay grade. He was also fascinated by Putin's five-minute video address, recorded during the uprising, in which Putin spoke of treason and betrayal and seemed to compare himself to Nicholas II, unable to prosecute a war because of intrigues behind his back. Was it absolutely necessary to make this speech? Clement asked. It made Putin look panicky and weak, he said, if you really think it's a full-blown rebellion, why don't you take him out? Nonetheless, he could see no pathway to a Russia without Putin. An analysis in the Times had suggested that there could be talk in his inner circle of asking Putin not to stand for re-election in 2024. Clement was skeptical. The trouble with that is, who's the person who's going to go in there and say that to him? Who is going to say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, look, you are a very rich man, we think you should go and retire and just live happily ever after. Clement recalled an incident during the Iran-Iraq war, in which one of Saddam Hussein's advisors suggested that a way to forge peace would be for Saddam to temporarily step down as prime minister. The man was executed and his body parts delivered to his family the next day. Dictators don't like to be told that they should retire. Clement said. He added that, in this, they weren't necessarily wrong, could Putin actually retire? Who could guarantee his safety? Wouldn't whoever replaced him as the ruler of Russia find it very uncomfortable to have Putin still hanging around? This isn't like Khrushchev, where he can just go live quietly on his farm, Clement said. This was a person with a lot of enemies. For the moment, at least, it was also a person with a lot of power. He still controls the army and the FSB, Clement said. And people are still afraid of him. Clement suspected that Prigazin would meet an unhappy end. Putin is notably vengeful, widely believed to have approved the murder of people he deemed to have betrayed Russia long after they had done it, though the Kremlin has repeatedly denied the country's involvement. But Clement also believed that the experience with Prigazin could make Putin more cautious, he might make some changes among his advisors, as a way of explaining the failures of the war, he might even conclude, Clement speculated, that the war was taking away too many resources, that he needed to focus on domestic concerns, and that he would therefore consider engaging in ceasefire talks, so that he could regroup and possibly resume war later. That, Clement went on, was still low probability but the probability had increased. Zurevlev, the sociologist, observed Prigazin's uprising from a hospital in Almaty, Kazakhstan, where he had gone to do research and had come down with appendicitis. He found the spectacle fascinating, both terrifying and encouraging, but the videos of ordinary Russians in Rostov-on-Don greeting Prigazin's fighters and cheering them on did not entirely surprise him. Zurevlev interpreted it, optimistically, as a sign of engagement. In his interviews with young Russians, he had been struck by how many of them wanted to talk about the war but had no opportunities to do so. Now there was an opportunity, not owing to a democratic movement, to be sure, but an opportunity nonetheless. The uprising was encouraging in another way, too, it showed that it might not be so hard to organize a revolution in Russia. For now, the people who want to do it don't have the means, Zurovlev said, and the people who have the means don't want to do it. But perhaps this could change. 
Kendall Taylor was quick to clarify that the events of the past weekend were not an attempted coup but an insurgency, a sign of frustration rather than a planned attempt at regime change. Nonetheless, the message that Prigazin's actions had been sending for months, that the regime was not as strong as it seemed, that you could defy it and survive, had been significantly strengthened. So much of the glue of these regimes is that no one knows how widely held the discontent is, she said. When something like this happens, it sends such an informative signal that others are as dissatisfied as you are. It starts to change people's calculus about what is possible. The next time something happens in Russia that people do not like, it could be a major military defeat, or, slightly more likely, according to Kendall Taylor, something to do with the 2024 presidential election, they may not be so worried about going out into the street to say so. Prigazin may or may not survive his stay in Belarus, but here was a person who marched with a small army several hundred miles through Russia without encountering any real resistance. That didn't mean the regime was in danger of imminent collapse, but it suggested that the chances had increased slightly. That's the way these regimes unravel, Kendall Taylor said. At the end of the day, whether it comes from a coup or an insurgency or a protest, Putin will at some point give an order to crack down and fire, and people won't do it. And that's the end of the regime. No one could predict the future. But it was worth trying to analyze the situation and think it through. Earlier, Kendall Taylor had said that the chances of Putin no longer being in power in two years were 10%. Now she was willing to go up to 20. Diamond suit.